This is Dr. Amy Hoffnagel from the University of Florida, Jacksonville, here to discuss interventional neurosurgical treatment of stroke. With me for this edition of the SNAC Periscope is Dr. Bobak Jerome. Dr. Jerome is a professor of neurosurgery and the division chief of cerebral vascular and neurointerventional surgery at Northwestern University in Chicago. Additionally, he has a PhD in neurobiology. He has dozens of publications with several recent publications on stroke treatment and diagnosis. Bobak, on behalf of the SNAC Education Committee, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. It's a wonderful pleasure to be with you today. Okay, so starting with our first question, a large portion of our listener group are anesthesiologists. So can you explain to us from a surgical perspective, what exactly are you doing with stroke thrombectomies and what is the benefit of thrombectomy over traditional treatment? A bit of a historical perspective might help. There are uh, some analogies to treatment of acute stroke uh, with myocardial infarction. Uh, in essence, uh, a heart attack has many similarities to what is a brain attack. Both involve acute occlusion, usually uh, in the brain, embolic uh, of a large vessel providing supply to a key portion of the end organ. In a heart attack, the symptoms are readily apparent causes chest pain and our patients get to the hospital earlier and myocardium is more tolerant of ischemia for a more prolonged time. The symptoms in the brain unfortunately may not be as clear-cut. They don't cause pain. They may have a staccato onset and unfortunately often warning signs are ignored by patients and the end organ is much more vulnerable to ischemia. If we look at a culture dish with neurons, from the start of a hypoxic uh, slash uh, hypoglycemic uh, treatment to neuronal death, that timeline can be measured in minutes. So the viability of the brain in stroke primarily depends on collateral supply. Traditionally, there was really no way of rapidly improving flow to the brain short of improving collateral supply. So previous treatments would involve lying the patient down, fluids, hydration, and various ancillary means of improving collateral flow to the ischemic portion. However, none of that supplants the key problem where there's an end artery, typically the middle cerebral artery that's occluded. And if we use generic calculations done by Jeff Saver, in a large supratentorial stroke, the brain dies at a rate of about 2 million neurons per minute. So without revascularization of the artery that's occluded, there's not a lot of time for the brain to improve its collateral supply. And so... Prior to IV TPA and subsequently thrombectomy, patients with large supratentorial strokes did not fare well. Now, the analogy to cardiology comes from the era of acute MI prior to thrombolysis, streptokinase, TPA, and eventually door-to-balloon times. The mortality for acute MI was pretty high. The first tool that came along was lytics, and eventually we moved on to going straight to the cath lab, and now metrics are measured 
indoor to balloon time. The same evolution has happened in the brain, where in 1995, the pivotal NINDS study was released showing that IVTPA, if given intravenously within three hours, improved outcomes. So this is the first time we had a drug that would actually thrombolize, dissolve, open that artery that was blocked. The problem is IVTP doesn't work very fast. And so there's been, since 1995, two decades of work done to get us to today to find devices that are safe enough and yet effective enough to navigate through a transarterial route to the occlusion and open the occluded artery. And along the way, we've learned many things about how to properly select patients, what devices to use, and how fast we need to move. So those are the key things we've learned. The procedure itself is fairly intuitive. It involves a, a percutaneous approach, typically transfemoral, done under fluoroscopy, usually a biplane angiosuite, where large catheters are placed in the common carotid to support subsequently the thrombectomy catheters, which are more softer and navigable to go intracranial, and usually combined with the most modern generation of thrombectomy devices, which are retrievable stents. These go by the acronym of stent retrievers. So the combination of modern devices and modern techniques led finally to the recent trials, which showed overwhelming positivity for thrombectomy versus intravenous TPA alone in patients who had an intracranial occlusion. So I would actually like to talk a little bit about those studies. I think we were all a little bit disappointed in back in 2013 when there were the three papers published in rapid succession. These were the IMS3, the MR Rescue, and the Synthes. And basically those all came out overwhelmingly in favor of TPA saying that the stent retrieval and the thrombectomy weren't effective. Um, and actually, I think several of us were concerned that this would be the end of the use of thrombectomy, even though we had personally seen good outcomes for it. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about these studies, because they do have some inherent flaws in them. So can you tell me about the studies and what you think the biggest issue with their designs are? Um, you've really hit the nail on the head. Um, all of us in the uh, interventional field were extremely surprised and disappointed. Uh, again, we'd all seen personal experience of these procedures working. But to some extent, perhaps we shouldn't have been surprised if we go back and we look at the trial design. Uh, in a sense, these were set up for failure. So I think I'll briefly just summarize what were the combined flaws shared across these trials and what were the learning lessons that within two years led to a new generation of trials coming out that were overwhelmingly positive. And so what changed? What was night and day? Well, probably the biggest change was that when the first three trials came out in 2013, and these are the IMS-3, the synthesis expansion, and the MR rescue trials, these trials all concluded in 2013, but they had been recruiting five-plus years. And during the time span of these trials, uh, there was a rapid evolution of stroke devices. In particular, what has become a complete game-changer has been the retrievable stents. Again, they go by the name stent retrievers, which are much more easy to deploy, much safer, 
and much more effective in grabbing a clot and retrieving it from the intracranial circulation. So not only is the procedural success rate higher, the complication rate is much lower. At this point, anywhere in the world, in a high-end neurointerventional suite, that's the first tool we're going to grab to do a thrombectomy. Yet, if we look back at the trials in 2013, we didn't have access to these tools. So IMS-3, only 1.5% of patients were treated with stent retrievers. In synthesis, only 14%, and no one in MR rescue had a stent retriever. So we were using very old tools, and that naturally translated into worse recanalization rates. So in the more modern trials, our complete to near-complete recanalization rate is anywhere between 16 to 90%. Our recanalization rate in the 2013 trials was about 40% in IMS-3, unknown in synthesis, it wasn't published, and only 27% in MR rescue. So we were using poor tools and getting poor results. And so the trial was really not representative of what we use today. And I think that was a key reason that these trials were not able to demonstrate uh, superiority of endovascular technique simply because the technique wasn't that good. Um, so that released the procedural side. However, there's also a key aspect of selecting the right patient. And that's also where modern tools have helped with advanced perfusion imaging, in particular using multimodal CT angiography and CT perfusion. We can be very uh, successful at determining who will benefit and who won't from these procedures. In essence, we're cherry-picking because that's what an interventionalist has to do. You really want to pick people who will benefit from what is an invasive and expensive procedure. So in the prior trials, anyone who came in with a stroke-like symptom was a candidate, but none of them were pre-screened to see if that stroke was being caused by a large vessel occlusion, which is the only thing that is a target for thrombectomy. In IMS-3, subsequent to a portion of it being carried out, they allowed advanced imaging to look to see if there was an occlusion before randomization, but that only came to a point where only less than half of the patients received that screening. None of that was done in synthesis. MR Rescue used it, but their numbers were very small. So choice of patients based on a large vessel occlusion was not uniform in those trials. And then lastly, it doesn't, it's not sufficient to just have an occluded artery. One also has to have a viable parenchyma to salvage. In other words, a patient can have a blocked artery, but it may be too late. That, may, that brain may be beyond salvage. And again, that's not someone who's going to benefit from this procedure. And if anything, uh, they may be harmed by it. So what current criteria require is a patient who has a stroke that justifies treatment, a large vessel occlusion that is an actual target for this treatment, and some form of advanced imaging, typically perfusion or multimodal CTA, that shows that if the artery is opened, the parenchyma that that artery supplies is still viable. With those three, then we have the perfect trifecta to treat a patient, and that's where the modern trials succeeded. They learned from the lessons of the failed trials, rapidly recalibrated, used new devices and new imaging and new screening, and found the appropriate patient population to treat. So I also think one of the issues with the older trials was that they were using this as purely as salvage therapy. So these were typically patients that failed TPA. 
Did that algorithm change with the new studies? Uh, markedly so. Previously, only patients who had failed IVTPA would be treated since this was not a standard of care, and we'd often wait for IVTPA for an hour or so and then review and discuss and, in a sense, uh, lose precious time. The new trials turned it on its head. They basically said, we're going to randomize everyone. If they're eligible, they get IVTPA. If not, not. But the ones that are randomized to the interventional arm, regardless of whether IVTPA works or not, you're still going straight to the angio suite. And in particular, patients were picked so that they had a good pre-morbid baseline status. So they had to be fully functioning, not nursing home dependent, modified ranking score of zero to one. In other words, this was an upfront treatment used in patients who had a good pre-morbid function. And it was used irrespective of whether IVTPA was, re was delivered or not without waiting to see if IVTPA would work. It wasn't a salvage treatment. It was a predetermined process. And that saved a lot of time. So time to revascularization and trials like uh, ESCAPE were remarkably better than our previous results. Can you please just quickly say what of these new trials that we're talking about are? You mentioned the ESCAPE trial. What were the two others? So there's actually five trials that have come out since February 2015. The first one was Mr. Clean. It was a Dutch trial published in 2014. So that was the first. And it had, I think, the largest number of patients uh, randomized. It had 500 patients. And so they came out in 2014. And because of their overwhelming positivity, all the other trials then did an interim analysis and then realized, wait, we're also overwhelmingly positive. And so when Mr. Clean came out in 2014, that spurred three other trials called Extend IA, Swift Prime, and Escape to be presented at the International Stroke Conference in uh, February 2015. And so their results were overwhelmingly in positive for endovascular therapy being superior to only IVTPA alone. A fifth trial called Revascat then came out at the European uh, Stroke Conference uh, in April of 2015. Broadly speaking, all five trials had very similar inclusion and exclusion criteria. Uh, they all relate to adults. This is not related to the pediatric population. Age limit was 80 in some of the trials and none in three of the other trials. They all allowed for IVTP to be given if within the time course, they all looked at patients between zero to six hours. Reviscat was the one that went up to zero to eight hours, but a very small portion of patients. Escape went up to 12 hours, but again, a small portion of patients. So the bulk of data relates to zero to six hours. And they all selected for patients with good premorbid status, and they excluded patients who either didn't have a large vessel occlusion or had an established infarct on CT scan or had a poorly viable brain on perfusion scanning or multimodal CTA. In all of these trials, uh, there was extensive use of stent retriever technology, and as a result, the uh, recanalization rate in these trials was terrific. Uh, we had what is called TICI 2B3 thrombolysis and cerebral infarction scoring of uh, between 60 to 8 to 90 percent. So that, that is terrific revascularization rates. The 
symptomatic hemorrhage rates were all very, very small, and in particular, there was no difference in patients who got IV TPA versus patients who got IV TPA and endovascular therapy in the symptomatic hemorrhage rate. So these devices were shown to be safe, equally safe to IV TPA alone, but in terms of outcome, vastly superior. If we look at uh, the gold standard in measuring stroke outcome, which is the modified Rankin score at 90 Tay, dichotomized to 0 to 2 versus 3 to 6, 0 to 2 being our classic walkie-talkie patient, the person who's functionally independent, may not be back at a job, but is looking after their own ADLs. Uh, these trials showed in Extend IA 71 versus 40%, in Swift Prime 60 versus 35%, Mr. Clean had 30 versus 19%. Now, Mr. Clean, Mr. Clean had a broader treatment uh, group, but again, dramatic difference. In Escape, it was 53 versus 29%. In Revascat, it was 43 versus 28%. So the selection population was a bit different, but in each case, addition of endovascular therapy doubled, nearly doubled, I should say, the proportion of patients that had a good outcome at three months after treatment. So that really boils down to a NNT, a number needed to treat of between 2.5 to 3 for an improvement in MRS, and anywhere between 3 to 6, if you look at the trials, for uh, being functionally independent at three months. And an NNT of between 3 to 6 is amazing in modern medicine. That's huge. So I think it's safe to say at this point that this is going to be standard of care if it um, it is. Said to be. Actually, it is. The yeah. HA guidelines have come out. This is now the standard of care. So we can no longer ethically withhold thrombectomy from any patient who fits one of these trial criteria. And more so, this has an impact across field of stroke that will have to really change systems of care from EMS to the emergency department to vascular neurology to neurointerventional radiology to neurosurgery to our neurocritical care specialists and in particular to anesthesiologists who are going to be at the forefront when these patients arrive to support them through that initial complex treatment. It will affect every step. We now have to be able to rapidly transport these patients to centers that can provide this treatment, have these centers uh, trained, and be able to then offer these treatment in a timely fashion. The SNAT group has been pretty instrumental in defining the anesthesiologist's role in this. They wrote guidelines um, stating that monitored anesthesia care, or MAC, was preferable. Well, I was also wondering, you just mentioned that the anesthesiologists are at the forefront. I was wondering if you could comment on what you see our role as. Well, the intervention is sometimes the least difficult part of the procedure. It's supporting the patient through it, particularly given that uh, the guidelines are now leaning towards not intubating and not inducing general anesthesia. So from an anesthesiologist's point of view, you now have a very complex intracranial procedure done that traditionally would be done with perfect standstill, general anesthesia, uh, paralysis, and no movement to someone where the patient may wake up or may move or thrash during the procedure with an intracranial device in their head uh, with variability in blood pressure and an urgency in terms of time. So what used to be perhaps not necessarily elective, but you'd had a bit more time to prepare, put an A-line in, put the patient to sleep, is now akin to a ruptured AAA where you just have to really rush 
while maintaining the best possible patient safety to get the patient to the angio suite, support them through the procedure, and work in parallel as opposed to in series with the interventionalist. In other words, we could be obtaining groin access and threading our catheters up at the same time as you're getting in a second IV, potentially considering putting an A-line if you really need it, or piggybacking off the groin sheet, titrating the drugs for anesthetic purposes, and adjusting uh, vasopressors and or uh, uh, blood pressure control medication. So uh, it's on the surface of it, more chaotic and less controlled, yet with practice and in centers that have really good teams, it becomes a beautifully choreographed ballet where everyone in parallel knows exactly what they're doing and works in concert with the rest of the team to get the patient through what is a very time-critical procedure. Um, there is increasing emphasis on using conscious sedation and or MAC rather than general anesthesia. Uh, some of the trials, in particular Mr. Crean, in post-hoc, not randomized, but in post-hoc analysis have shown that outcomes were better in patients who didn't get general anesthesia. And there have been a few meta-analyses of uh, case series published that again point to patients not undergoing general anesthesia having better outcomes. Now, these are not randomized trials, and one concern that uh, various uh, authors have mentioned is that it's possible that patients who are not as sick are more tolerant of local anesthesia rather than general anesthesia, and so there's a selection bias that less sick patients could tolerate this, and of course, their outcome is going to be better. Uh, the studies have tried to account for stroke severity and still point to patients not undergoing general anesthesia as doing better. Um, there are now at least two, if not more, ongoing multi-center randomized trials. One is ANSTROKE, A-N-S-T-R-O-K-E, uh, sponsored by uh, uh, Sweden, and the other one is the Goliath trial, uh, sponsored uh, by our house university, uh, GLIF standing for General Local Anesthesia and Intraarterial Therapy, that uh, will hopefully provide level one evidence for whether local versus general anesthesia is the way to go. Uh, but more and more of the field is moving to that. We think, we're not sure, but we think some of the reasons why avoiding general anesthesia may be a better idea is it probably saves time. That's the key. Uh, and time is a huge factor in good outcomes. And secondly, uh, there may be less hypotension involved in cases that don't undergo general anesthesia. Uh, we have to remember that during this entire time, the ischemic penumbra is basically dependent on trickle flow through collaterals, and a drop in blood pressure can have substantial impact. But uh, we'll have the final answer through these randomized trials. Fantastic. Well, this has been an incredibly useful conversation. Um, to end with, I wonder if you have any predictions for what the latest is going to be at the stroke conference this coming February. Um, I suspect we'll have some preliminary data for some of these trials released in terms of where the anesthetic considerations are going to be. Um, uh, there's some look at blood pressure management during stroke intervention, and I suspect there'll be some data coming from that. And then lastly, all of the large stroke trials that were performed, the PIs are collaborating to be able to do uh, a patient-level combined meta-analysis. And I suspect we'll get a lot more detail in terms of how can we even further subselect or better define what's the ideal patient. Well, perfect. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you very much. I want to thank you and your colleagues. Uh, while the interventional side of it may get a lot of press, I want to be quite honest, without support 
from our anesthesia colleagues who are essentially the critical care specialists during these procedures, none of this will work. You guys are pull call and are in-house when these things happen. So we really remain indebted to your help for this.